It's actually a part of my rider now to have an intro like that before I come to speak. <laughs> Anything less dramatic, <clears throat> I just walk. Oh, everybody good? This feels, this feels kind of lovely, doesn't it? Yeah, this is lovely. Hey, welcome to the vineyard. My name is Adam. I'm the pastor here and um, hope you found a spot. Really glad you're here. Um, this is great having everybody together for one service. I'm sure we lost somebody along the way somewhere, but this is really, really nice. We haven't done this for over almost two years, and this, this feels really, really right. So I, for one, am happy. Um, hey, why don't you open up your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke? We're going to read several passages in a row before we begin the message, and um, let me go ahead and put them up. They're a little bit random, so hopefully the message will tie them together for you here in a few minutes. Luke chapter 1, 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the, division, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. A little bit further in the story, after these days, his wife, that'd be Zachariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself in hiding, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. This is when the angel comes to Mary, verse 26. In the sixth month, the, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him, this is chapter 2, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Yeah. 
Yeah, today's message is called Out on the Edges and Out on the Borders. What I want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk to you about the fact that God's kingdom is a completely different kind of kingdom. You may have noticed it in the passages that we just read, or maybe you didn't. And if you didn't, no one's going to hold that against you. But God's kingdom is a completely different kind of kingdom. Uh, we can never say that enough because it's really easy to forget. Easy to learn, but really easy to forget. It's easy to forget because God's kingdom works in a way that confounds just about everything that you and I have ever learned. It's as though the world is headed in one direction, and then God's kingdom is headed in the exact opposite direction. A lot of contrast there. And that contrast is reason to take note because it is God's kingdom that will never be shaken. It will never be shaken. Every other kingdom will be shaken, and the shaking will reveal that a good deal of what we've put our trust in wasn't as solid as we once thought. So... We want to get in line with the kingdom that can't be shaken, if that makes sense. Everything else is going to be shaken. The shaking is going to reveal it for what it really is. We're going to realize we've put our trust in a wrong spot. We need to get in line with the kingdom that can never be shaken. The one that's moving in the almost always the exact opposite direction of the kingdoms of the world. So for this reason, it has been said, maybe you've heard this, that God's kingdom is what? An upside down kingdom. You all ever heard that? God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. How is it an upside-down kingdom? Well, it's an upside-down kingdom like this. The first are last. The great are the ones who serve. Giving is better than receiving, and the weak are strong. Those are currents which are moving in the exact opposite direction of everything that you've ever learned, most likely, about how life works. Those are just a few of what we might call the pillars of the kingdom, and they stand in strong contrast to the kingdoms of this world, where in this world the first are first and the last are last. The great are the ones who are served. Receiving is always better than giving. And the weak are weak, and the strong are strong, and the strong are taking even more strength from the weak. The kingdoms of this world prize three things in particular. They prize power, influence, and money. The kingdoms of this world not only value these commodities, but they look to accumulate them and centralize them to the point that there becomes a geographical component to them, a visible domain with actual boundaries and borders, if this makes sense. For instance, New York City is the capital of money. Washington, D.C. is the capital of power and political influence. And Los Angeles is the capital of entertainment. These spots on the map have become synonymous with these sorts of expressions, these sorts of values that the kingdoms of this world hold up. These places tend to have a gravitational pull and an orbit, and they set the whole solar system in place. Are you getting this? They set the whole system into place. And this gravitational pull works invisibly, just like gravity is keeping you and I on the floor right now. These places have a gravitational pull. There is a gravitational pull to the kingdoms of this world, and it will put you in place if you don't watch it. Suddenly, we're playing by rules that we didn't know we had conceded to. Suddenly, we are thinking thoughts that we had never discerned. 
Suddenly we're citizens of a kingdom that we thought we were leaving. And suddenly, we're, rather than carrying the cure, we become a part of the disease again. Now, I want to tell you something this morning. Uh, this isn't a beat up on certain cities message. Just in case you thought that's where I was going. This isn't about beating up on New York City. I love New York City. I think everyone in here should go to New York City. New York City isn't a good city. It's a great city. But make no mistake, it has a gravitational pull. And without even knowing it, you can be playing by a kingdom's rules that you never agreed to. New York City is great. What I'm trying to point out is this. I'm trying to point out that the kingdoms of this world have a very specific value... And the kingdoms of this world not only have values, but they, they tend to gather them and centralize around those values as a means of control. So that if you want to play in a certain arena, you have to play by certain rules. Does that make sense? The kingdoms of this world have values. They tend to centralize and gather those values as a means of control. So that if you want to play in that arena, you have to play by those rules. What do I mean? What I mean is this, that New York City has been built upon gathering the world's money. Washington, D.C. has been built upon gathering the nation's, this nation and other nations' political power, and L.A. has been built upon gathering the world's talent. However, the kingdom of God works in the exact opposite direction. Rather than gather and centralize and put things in one location, the kingdom of God scatters. The kingdoms of this world gather and centralize. The kingdom of God scatters. It sows. It disperses. It releases. Jesus said to his disciples, if you remember this in the, in the book of Acts, from, Ju- from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Do you remember that? What we have again here is a picture of, of kingdoms which are working in the exact opposite direction. It's a different kingdom. There are different values because there are different values, there are different rules. Because there are different rules, there is a different end game. And not only is there a different end game, there's a different starting point. And it's the reason why I love the Christmas story. I love the Christmas story. The Christmas story is a picture of a different starting point, different rules, different end game, a different kind of story, and a different kind of narrative altogether. In the Christmas story, we have the king of the universe coming to earth without a palace born in a barn. See, the kingdoms of the world, they value power. But in the coming of Jesus, God shows us that weakness trumps power. If you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God is using the weak to shame the strong, and He's using the simple to confound the wise. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. What kind of king has no palace? What kind of king has no palace? There's two possible answers to the question, what kind of king has no palace? Number one, either he's really not a king at all. If you don't have a palace, you're either potentially, possibly not a king at all, or perhaps we've seriously misunderstood what power and authority were all about. I'd like to suggest to you that it's the latter rather than the former. Not only did the king of kings come without a palace, not only was he born in a barn, but he came about as far away from the power structure of the day as a person can come. He had no money. 
It wasn't just he had no palace. Jesus was born with no money. Right? You say, well, the, well, the Magi gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Yeah, you're right. He had no money and people from a far off place had to come and bring him stuff. No money. No palace. Born in a barn in Bethlehem. He had no influence. No influence whatsoever. His mother bore him in shame. And by the way, the shame wasn't just a nine-month-long shame. It would have been a shame that lasted for 30 years, at least. Maybe her entire life. She would have lived in a neighborhood where people thought for 30 years, Mary is a liar. She's loose and she's a liar. Worse still, she tells lies about God. She says God did it to her. No money, no palace, no influence. And not only that, but Jesus was born in the wrong neighborhood. Even geographically, he was on the outside. He was born in Bethlehem. While the action was in Jerusalem and Rome. Remember the first chapter of John. When Nathaniel says to Philip, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Wrong neighborhood. The implication is that no, no good thing can come out of Nazareth. There's no way he could possibly be Messiah. The objection wasn't a theological objection. It was a geographical objection. Powerful people are not from Nazareth. It's the wrong place. Yet the kingdom of God is happening out on the margins. This is what we really need to see this morning. The kingdom of God is happening out on the margins and it's happening out on the edges. It's away from what most people consider to be reasonable. That's where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is coming to the weak and the marginalized. All the main players in the Christmas story are people who are living on the edges. We should review a few. Everyone in the room remembers Zachariah and Elizabeth? These are people living out on the edges. At first glance, you might be tempted to believe that they're a part of the status quo. And in some ways, they are a part of the power structure and the status quo. They are from the right family. They're both from the line of Aaron, which means that they are from the priestly line. Aaron is a priest. And not only is Aaron a priest, but he is selected to go in and offer prayers, which could only happen one time in your entire life. It was so special. And so he was going into the temple, the very religious power structure of the day. But there was one massive gaping hole in their life. And the Christmas story makes particular mention of it. And it is the fact that they what? Had, had no baby. They're childless. Childless. And not only was it that they had no baby. Um, but there was, there was an aspect of shame and reproach that had been placed upon them because they had no baby. And if, it's one of the reasons that we read chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Could we bring that back up? I want you to see this. Look at verse 25. This is what Elizabeth says after she's become pregnant. This is an old woman who's become pregnant. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among the people. She had lived her whole life with reproach 
and with shame because she was barren. This is a time when people did the math like this. If you couldn't have a baby, there's a reason. And the reason wasn't physiological. It wasn't just the plumbing doesn't work. The reasons were oftentimes theological. The reasons were oftentimes connected to things in the spirit world. Do you guys remember when Jesus healed the blind man in the Gospel of John? There becomes this sort of debate that happens in the, in the temple and in the, in, in among the religious leaders. And what is the debate? Who sinned? This man or his parents, right? This is the sort of thinking that went on. And so for years, Zechariah and Elizabeth, even though they're from the right family, and even though Zechariah's got a, a highly favored position in the, in the religious structure of the day, they are on the outside because people literally think, wonder what they've done. They don't, have, they, don't have a, they don't have a son. They don't even have a daughter. I wonder what they've done. Living out on the edges, out on the margins. Not only that, not only that, not only was there reproach, but I want you to consider this, that from all the people who were from the line of Aaron, from all the priests who could serve before the Lord, and from all the candidates, who does God choose to work through? It isn't just a story about someone who didn't have a son, who got a son. This is, this is a story about God bringing someone into his bigger Jesus story. And by the way, I hope you understand, there were other people who were from the line of Aaron, and there were other people who were uh, ministering before the Lord in the temple. And from all the other choices that God had, who did he choose? Chose the outsider. Chose the weak. Chose the marginalized. Co- chose the couple who had been talked about their entire year. Their whole life. That's who he chose. Chose someone on the edge. He chose someone on the edge of reproach and shame. And so God is saying something in their life to everyone else if they have ears. God is saying, I will give birth to something new right out of something barren. And the whole time he's talking about the temple. God is saying, in one subtly, incredibly loud voice. He is saying, the temple is barren and I'm going to bring something new out of something barren. And he's doing it from people who are on the edge, people who are marginalized, people who are weak. Where is the kingdom of God? It's out on the edge. Mary and Joseph. We're maybe a bit more familiar with Mary and Joseph, right? Even pagans know who Mary and Joseph are. Well, who really are Mary and Joseph? This is who they are. This is, this is God's choice for bringing the Savior of the world onto the planet. Mary's probably a 16-year-old girl, which doesn't seem like such a big deal to you and I, except that you have to think for just a moment. Mary's 16 and she's a teenager and she's living at home. Not only is she a teenager living at home, but she's a girl. And this is in a time when a woman's testimony cannot even stand up in a court of law because women have no say. Who is God using? 
He's using the people who have no say. Saying, I'd like to use someone who's too young and of the wrong gender. I, I would really like to empower that. I would like to use someone that everyone else in the room can disqualify in an instant. That's who I would like to use. I would like to use someone who doesn't even have the intellectual capacity, most likely, in understanding the way the world works, to be able to defend herself against people who are smarter, stronger, and have power. I would like to use someone that week. That's who God is into drawing into his story. And then we have Joseph. And honestly, on the outside, Joseph is just the most pathetic guy in the whole story. Joseph is probably my favorite guy in the whole story. But if you, if you think about it, if you think about living around Joseph, if you think about you yourself being Joseph, he's the most pathetic guy in the whole story. Why? Because he's the one person who believes her. He gets an angelic dream. Don't divorce this woman. What's happening to her is from God, and he decides to believe her. And so the whole community, the village where they live, not only did they think that Mary was loose, and not only did they think that Mary was a liar, but they think that Joseph is desperate and pathetic. Completely disempowered. Completely disempowered. Neither would have been powerful in their families, let alone in Jerusalem or Rome. Furthermore, the activity of God in their life would have made them even less powerful. We're talking about people who didn't have power in their families. God says, I want to use people who don't, do not have power in the family. And what I'm going to do to them is going to make them even less powerful. You see, sometimes when God moves in your life, it initially makes it worse. It initially leaves you in a position of even greater weakness and shame. But here's God, again, working along the margins, right on the edges. And then there's the shepherds. Shepherds were quite literally out in their fields. They're just working Joes, that's all. They're just farmers. It's a regular night. Just like the hundred other nights and the thousand other nights that they had spent outside watching their sheep. Sheep were probably beginning to lay down and Call it an evening and then someone builds a fire. Maybe warms up a can of beans. <laughs> then another shepherd grabs his guitar. Sings a few Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> then one of the other shepherds breaks out the whiskey. It's cold outside. You need a sip. And then suddenly heaven is open and an angelic chorus is singing out in the country. Where's the symphony playing that night? It isn't in the city. It's out in the country. You see, Handel's Messiah was first sang out on the farm. <laughs> Not in a music hall. Not in a conservatory. Not at a university, not before kings and queens, presidents and dignitaries, but before shepherds, simple farmers out on the farm. It's the weirdest marketing strategy ever. 
The press release for the biggest move in history was made to a handful of shepherds in the middle of nowhere. Again, where is God at work? God's at work out in the middle of nowhere. That's where He's at work. And who is God working with? He's working with the nobodies. God's working with the nobodies, the down and outs, the losers, the simple, and the weak. Uh, now I want to read you something that I picked up off of a blog this week that I thought was really great. This is three paragraphs that someone who does not know or love Jesus wrote about change coming from the edges. Okay? This is what he says. He says, In any industry, society, or business, there are status quo powers at play. These are generally legacy structures set up for a time and a place that needed that design. Think big media and broadcasting and print. How, how it has been disrupted by the internet, mobiles and social media in the last 10 years. How about government? How about humanitarian space? How about the energy industry? All of these industries were seen as innovative when they came into their own decades and centuries ago. And now their legacy in both infrastructure and design, their relevancy in the current state is in question. By their nature, they fight to maintain the power structures that keep them in position that they hold. Changes to the foundations on which they stand is not only scary, it's deadly. This is the great part. Innovation comes from the edges. So it comes as no surprise that innovators are found out in the margins. They're the misfits among us. The ones who see and do things differently. They challenge the status quo and power sources that prop that up. So, are, so they are generally marginalized as reflexive and defensive action. Think about what you're really asking when you say you want innovation in your space. Because when you do, you're asking for the outliers, the disruptors, the rebels to have their way. You're asking for a new way of thinking and doing and if, you're going to, and if you're in a position of power within an industry, you're likely going to be upset along the way. Where's God working? Out on the edges, out on the margins, away from power. He's working with the weak. When I read paragraphs like that, I can't help but think of John the Baptist living out in the desert, eating food that no one else ate, wearing clothes that no one else wore. Anybody in here want to eat grasshoppers? Actually, he ate locusts, which I just read this week are the exact same thing as grasshoppers, which have gone insane. Did you know that? Locusts are grasshoppers that have gone insane. When a grasshopper thinks that food is becoming scarce, something changes within their DNA structure. They grow, they grow uh, larger wings, they get a voracious appetite, and they begin to just destroy everything. It's very interesting. That's what John the Baptist eats. What's for dinner, John? Grasshoppers. We dip them in honey, though. It's really delicious. Another question about John the Baptist, though. If you, consider this now for a moment, if you were going to introduce the King of Kings to the rest of the world, is John the Baptist the person you would choose to make that introduction? 
Forget the king of kings. Forget Jesus just for a moment. If you were going to have anyone introduce any king, I should have looked this up. I don't even know what the smallest country in the world is. But that country, if we were going to have that king introduced anywhere, would you choose a man who's wearing camel hair and a leather belt, who eats locust and wild honey? Would you choose that guy to make an introduction for that man? The answer is no. What does God say? Yes, that's my guy. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is working in his opposite direction. The people that the rest of the world thinks are on the outside, God is saying, they're on the inside. That's what I'm looking for. The kingdom is coming at the edge and it's coming at the margins and the king is coming through the edgy and the marginalized. It reminds me of the Wright brothers. You guys remember the Wright brothers? Got that little plane off the ground. I went and watched some YouTube videos of like pictures of their shop and their workspace. And that plane that they made. So interesting. One of the things you may not know about the Wright brothers is this. At the very same time that they were working on man flight, so was the government of the United States of America. The very same time. Not only that, but the government here in America had commissioned a Washington insider named Samuel Perry Langley. How would you like to have that name? Samuel Langley of the Smithsonian. And and the government had commissioned him to work on manned flight. He was fully funded. All the money that he could ever ask for, he was given. He was given the brightest minds of the day. And all government red tape was cut out of his way so that he might solve the mystery of manned flight. But two bicycle mechanics... With no money, no money, no specialized knowledge, no bright minds, no backing, they solve the problem. Why? Because change is coming from the edges. Because change is coming from the edges. Not only that, but there's another man named William Seymour. Anybody in the room ever heard of William Seymour? William Seymour was an African-American man who, who was a preacher. And he heard a message or two from a white guy out in the middle of Kansas about being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Now, the really interesting part is that the white guy who was preaching the message that Believers could be filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues, had never been filled with the Spirit or spoken tongues. But he had a little, he had a little them, theological seminary, we'll call it that. And William Seymour wanted to be a part of it, but he was not allowed in the room. He was made to sit outside, and they would sometimes open the window so that he might hear a little bit better. Through a long series of events, he ends up in Los Angeles. Preaching a message that he himself has not experienced. At a prayer meeting with a handful of white women, and the Holy Spirit falls in the room with great power, 
and kicks off what has later become known as the Azusa Street Revival, which happened in a ghetto in Los Angeles, and the meetings were later held in a run-down, dilapidated stable that no one else would even walk into, and the power of God hit that room for a couple years with such great force that an entire branch of the church sprang out of it, hundreds of denominations And millions of people have come into the kingdom because of a black man who was on the outside and who was barely let in was used by God. Why? Because God is always working on the margins. He's always working in the edges with people who are disempowered. That's who God is adding favor to. The people who are right in the middle, God is probably working around them. A couple weeks ago, it was the 50th anniversary of the shooting of JFK. Y'all remember that? The TV was full of it, right? Yeah. And during one of the segments that I watched about it, it was so interesting. They were talking about some of the change that began to swell just even during the short time that he was in office. And they spent some time talking about the civil rights movement and it's so interesting to me that even in our own nation's history with, with an issue that was, was and still is such a, such a big deal as civil rights, that Washington didn't have answers for that. The answers came from where and from whom? Came from not Washington, came from the wrong part of the country, came from the South, came from Georgia. Can any good thing come out of Georgia? Right? Martin Luther King Jr. Washington didn't want to touch it. JFK didn't want to touch it. He only touched it because he was made to. Wrong part of the country. Wrong color. Wrong message. Wrong everything except that's what the Spirit was empowering. Why? Out on the margins, out on the edges. That's where God's at work. I want to read you a scripture out of the book of Acts. It's chapter 17. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read it to you. This is about Paul. It's one of his journeys. It says, when he had, when he had passed, in, passed through a couple cities and he had come into Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying... This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed of mobbed, and they set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, I love this, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. I hope you notice that a few men had turned the world upside down. How many many people does it take to turn the world upside down? Just a few. Not from the center, but from the edge. And I also want you to know that these people 
who were so angry about Paul's message had no trouble connecting that it was an anti-Caesar message. Who was at the very center of the entire world at that time? Rome and Caesar. Where was God working? Out on the edges. Because of that, I have some good news for you this morning. You ready to hear some good news? I have good news for you this morning. This is really, really, really great news for probably almost everybody in the room. The good news this morning is this. If you're weak, and if you're on the outside, if you're marginalized, and if you're living on the edge, you're a prime candidate for seeing the kingdom of God come with great force. If you feel called by God, but you feel disqualified by culture, you should take heart. I want to say that again. If you feel called by God, but you feel disqualified by culture, you should take heart. If you think you're from the wrong family, the wrong city, the wrong neighborhood, you should be encouraged because that's where the kingdom of God is actually moving. If you don't have enough money, perfect. If your ideas are running in a direction that is counter to most of what you've heard from everyone else, you might be closing in on a massive failure or you might be ripe for a breakthrough. If you believe that states like Kentucky, West Virginia, and Arkansas are the worst places in our country. You should get excited and probably start moving to those places because that's where God is going to do His next thing. See, I believe that our region is ripe and I believe it's brimming with possibility. I personally believe that States like Kentucky, West Virginia, and Arkansas in particularly are probably going to give birth to major moves of the Spirit. I personally believe that places like Kentucky, West Virginia, and Arkansas are probably already carrying a tiny baby that everyone else can ignore. I believe that Jesus is probably being formed in the womb of states that have been despised. Cities that have been despised. I personally believe that there's probably going to be a pretty massive move of the Spirit come out of Las Vegas. Why? Because no one would ever expect it. I personally believe that Campbellsville has a Nazareth anointing. Can any good thing come out of Campbellsville? The Lord told me a long time ago, probably... Gosh, probably more like 14, 10, no, probably 14 years ago that Campbellsville had a Nazareth anointing. That people have said, can any good thing come out of Campbellsville? And God's answer was, absolutely. I personally believe that good things are going to be birthed here. Kingdom things. Blessing that looks like the world, 
but it's empowered and maintained by a worldview and practice that is quite different than anything that the kingdoms of this world have previously come up with. See, God is moving in the margins. And He's moving among the marginalized. He's growing something on the edges, and He's growing something with the edgy. And I believe that's really good news. Really, really, really good news. I believe this room is mostly a room of nobodies. I believe this room is mostly full of people who have value only because Jesus loves you. And that's enough. I believe this room is full of people who have, for the most part, been overlooked. And you're from the wrong family, born in the wrong neighborhood, got the wrong degree. I mean, you went to college and you got the wrong degree. I was going to say the degree, and then I just pulled it right back. You got the wrong degree. You just... And heaven is saying, perfect. He's saying, perfect. I also believe that for people in the room this morning who have courage to go to the edges and to go to the margins, you're going to find God there in a really profound way. In this room, we need to stop going to the centers of power, thinking that we're going to bring the kingdom through power structures that have been erected with a worldview and are maintained with a worldview which is anti-kingdom. Like we need, we need to stop it. We really do. We don't need the governor of Kentucky to give us anything. We don't, we, don't, we don't need him to give us anything. We don't need the president to give us anything. We don't. God, is, God has been working around Herod the entire time. We don't need to have a prayer meeting at the Capitol, and we don't need to have a prayer meeting in Washington, D.C. God is always working around those individuals. Does this mean that God is not working in, in institutions and with people of power? No, it just means that most of the time, traditional power institutions and people with power are not allowing God to come and do the thing that He wants to do. We don't need it. Let's not waste energy doing that. Let's go to the margins. Let's find the weak. Let's find the marginalized and let's look for the baby that's born in a barn rather than the king who's in a palace. We have got to do that. I hope you can hear that. This is what the Spirit is saying to us. Okay? All right. Hey, uh, why don't you put your hand on your heart? I want to pray.